coming to you from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. My guest on today's show is Tom Scioli, and he is writing and drawing Fantastic Four Grand Design. If you recall, Ed Piscor did for Marvel X-Men Grand Design, and what Tom is doing is something in a similar vein. He is summarizing the history of Marvel's first family, the Fantastic Four, focusing primarily on the Lee and Kirby years, but also giving a nod to other books since theirs and other series outside of the main title, and incorporating all of that into just two issues of Fantastic Four Grand Design. Quite a task ahead of him, but I cannot wait to see his take on the Fantastic Four. I've loved the art that I've seen in advance, and I cannot wait to see the finished product. Tom has been in the business for several decades, and a series that he worked on with Joe Casey, which was also heavily influenced by Jack Kirby's work, was Godland back in 2005. So just to get started, we begin talking about that Godland series, but then we quickly get into how Tom was introduced to the Fantastic Four, what issues he read and which ones had the biggest impact upon him, what was the most underrated Fantastic Four story, and if he were to create a villain for the Fantastic Four, what would that villain be like? And of course, I'll be kicking back with the creator and ask Tom all the fun questions I ask all my guests. So settle back and enjoy my conversation with Tom Scioli on Fantastic Four Grand Design, here now on Creator Talks. Tom, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Chris. I want to start going back a bit in your career just to get some background about what you have done. And I don't know if everyone is familiar with this. I'm sure they've heard of it. Godland, a series that you did with Joe Casey. This goes back like the mid-2000s. Heavily influenced by Jack Kirby's dialogue and art. I'm a big Kirby fan, so seeing that brought all that excitement back to me. It's a, a very good series about Adam Archer, a lone survivor on Mars, imbued with cosmic power by aliens to take man to the next level and see the connectedness of the universe. Really cool book. How did you get that gig with Joe way back then? Like a little bit prior to that, I sent like some of my comics, self-published comics, Myth of Eight Opus, to uh, Eric Larson. He's like a huge Kirby fan. And so we'd been talking and he was kind of trying to help me break into comics in sort of the next step, get out of self-publishing and maybe try getting something various places. And he got me into like a, a Fantastic Four book that he had been working on where it was like he would plot it out and do like these rough layouts and then the artist would try to do jack kirby and then the writers would try to do stan lee um it's called fantastic four world's greatest comics magazine he got me into that he wasn't publisher at image yet i mean of course he was one of the partners but i think jim valentino was partner at the time and so he was helping me sort of like repackage eight opus my uh, self-published thing that i got the xeric grant for he was trying to help me kind of repackage that into sort of like an image comic, you know, pump things up a little, you know, we did that for a while and, and it didn't, it didn't really bear any fruit, you know, ended up not getting picked up by image, you know, not too long after that, up to that point, they'd sort of all take turns, like all the image founders would kind of take turns being the publisher, you know, having that, you know, responsibility, uh, you know, uh, uh, being like the person in charge at image. And so Jim Valentino stepped down and then Eric took over. And so then one of the first things he did was called me up and said, you know, look, I'm thinking about running 
image a little differently than we've run it up to this point, because uh, up until that point, they would basically just wait for fully formed books to come to them, like creative teams to come to them. And he wanted to do more of like he called it like a love connection, uh, like kind of pair people up that he knew were like artists who were looking for writers, writers who were looking for art and kind of pair people up who he thought were maybe like thinking in similar directions. He had me in mind and he had Joe Casey in mind and he thought like if the two of us got together, we could come up with something really cool and would I be interested in that? I was totally into that. So that's how it started. I just want to back up a little bit. You mentioned the uh, Fantastic Four book, The World's Greatest Comic, that Eric Larson worked on. And I know that one because I bought that series when it came out. And over the years, as I've gone through comics and sadly have had to part with some just due to space, financial reasons, whatever, that one I have hung on to because it was such a great series because he captured the look of Kirby's work with all those different artists working on it. And I think it was like a lost, not a lost story, but kind of a continuing story, like in between some of the books that Jack did towards the end of his run. It was kind of filling in and it had everybody in there. And what was your contribution? Which one did you work on for that series? I was only in one issue. I think it was issue three. I did like five pages. I penciled five pages and then Bruce Tim inked them, which was really cool. That was the oh. first time anybody else ever inked me and to have it be Bruce Tim was like super cool. Very nice. I haven't gone back and looked at them honestly. Were you uncredited? No, 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 I was credited. Uh, the, the way the credits worked was at the beginning of the issue, it would say real big, like a tribute to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby or, you know, something like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's names would be real big. And then the names of the actual artists would be on the last page, you know, at the bottom. Like Eric wanted everybody do their best to put their own egos aside and to just try to like channel Kirby and Lee. And he's spoken about the series. He's not happy with the way that the series as a whole turned out. I mean, I have a much more charitable view of it was good too. I think a lot of the problems were just sort of like production. It was so early in the history of digital coloring mm -hmm. and then the history of making counterfeit old comics. Eric's gotten a lot better at making counterfeit old comics. I've gotten a lot better. It's sort of an art form now to really like fool the reader into thinking something new is old. And, you know, if that project were done today with like the knowledge that like all the people who worked on it have acquired since then, I think it would, I, like, I, I think uh, like a really good, uh, you know, counterfeit Jack Kirby, Stan Lee comic could have been made. I, I see what you're saying. So with the book, it was like you want the reader to feel like they are picking up a Stan and Jack book. And then you get credit at the very end. So you're not taking the person out of that space of saying, okay, now I have an old comic. But I also see your concerns about the coloring because that's one thing about some of the books back then that even though I like some of the stories in the art, sometimes the, the coloring was so primitive back then, it, they would almost look better if they were recolored today. I can't say that so much for the books that go way back because I like them with that old paper and the old coloring because it's suitable for the kind of pulp paper that was used back then. But yeah, that in-between phase, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People just didn't log the hours of like learning this new technology. It takes a really long time to figure out a technology and how to get it to work for you. And it was just too new. After the Godland series, did you take a break for a while? No, it was kind of towards the end of Godland. I think Godland was still running, but I, I did a um, graphic novel called American Barbarian. It was like an original graphic novel. Maybe it came out like shortly before... Godland ended. And then uh, Godland ended. And then I, I was working on some other stuff, comics that I did after American Barbarian and after Godland, I was trying to do like more creator owned stuff. And, you know, wasn't having a ton of luck with it. You know, I was trying to find, you know, publishers to do like I had a follow up to American Barbarian called Final Frontier. And, 
you know, I was hoping that I could find like a publisher to do that, but I wasn't able to. So I, I self-published that. And then Satan Soldier, which I did as like a web comic. Uh, same with American Barbarian, did that as a web comic. But then, you know, wasn't able to find a publisher for that. So I you know, self-published that. And I was getting to a point because I wanted to sort of, you know, partner up with somebody who could, you know, kind of help me take things to sort of a different place. and just wasn't having any luck there. So then it, like after that, I sort of was like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, take a break from this sort of creator-owned self-published stuff and just see if I can, you know, get some work in just like mainstream comics, you know, just do something for one of the companies, you know, and, and so I ended up getting in touch with John Barber at IDW, and then I did a couple of covers for various books, and then he pitched me on the Transformers G.I. Joe concept. Now, getting to the Fantastic Four, let's look at how you became interested in them. The first thing that caught your attention about the Fantastic Four, I understand, was the Thing cartoon, which I do remember that, going back to the Thing. It was very different from the family book. It was the Thing and this kid that could change into the Thing with his ring thing, ring thing, do your stuff, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too many things there. <laughs> right. Yeah. But is that right? Is that how you first were exposed to the whole concept of the Fantastic Four through the thing? Yeah, it was a while, at least in like kid terms. It was a while before I uh, got exposed to the Fantastic Four. It was like, yeah, it was that Hanna-Barbera cartoon of the thing and he'd bang his rings together and then all these orange rocks would come flying from God knows where and would attach themselves to him and then and then he'd be the thing. And as far as I was concerned, that was the thing. That was, you know, that was the thing. That was that was what I knew the thing to be. Like, I didn't know any different. And then, you know, maybe like a few years later, I saw Thing comic book in like 7-Eleven. On the cover, it had like Pac-Man characters. It was like the thing was like stuck in a video game or something. With these Pac-Man characters. And it was when Pac-Man was pretty popular. I bought it for the thing a little bit, but then mostly for the Pac-Man stuff. And then in that, I think the Fantastic Four maybe show up, like it was a solo, you know, Marvel 2-in-1 or whatever that Thing series was. The Fantastic Four were in it, so it's like, oh, okay, so the Thing has this, like, family that he's part of, these, like, friends. But the Thing is the main guy. He just has these sort of friends. And, you know, it was kind of a while after that before I figured out who the Fantastic Four was. I just wasn't exposed to them. You know, this was, like, early 80s. I totally missed the John Byrne period. At that time, Fantastic Four were, like, huge in the 60s. And then, you know, kind of big in the 70s, but less so. And then by the 80s, they'd sort of petered out. John Byrne, his run sort of brought some excitement and some freshness back to the Fantastic Four. But in like a pop culture sense, they seemed kind of obscure to me. The Hulk was huge. He was on Saturday morning cartoons, Spider-Man and Friends. And then occasionally like the Avengers seemed like a pretty big deal too because of Secret Wars. Like the Secret War toy was huge. So it was like Captain America's, you know, he was like the leader of the team there and stuff. And it just seemed like Fantastic Four were more in the background. X-Men, of course, as I read more comics, like X-Men, you know, in the 80s, they were reprinting all the old Chris Claremont, John Byrne X-Men in classic X-Men. It was like the best comic you could buy back then. It was just great and had reprints of those great old stories from the 70s. And then they'd have these new stories in the back that were like even better, that would like enrich the characters. They were usually like these character moments, uh, less, you know, slam bang action and more depth. So it was just this really nice package. Fantastic Four was just old to me. They seemed like they were from a different era. They seemed Space Family Robinson, like lost in space. They didn't seem very current. You know, they didn't seem sexy. It wasn't maybe until college that I got the Treasury edition of the Fantastic Four, and it had like a bunch of stories. And then it had the final story in it was the coming of Galactus. That made me a Fantastic Four fan. I have those sitting right next to me, the Treasury editions, because I love those when I was growing up, when I would find those in the store, be so excited to see that giant-sized, oversized treasury comic book because the art is huge. 
and it's really nicely packaged. And the first one that I picked up was actually the second one they did, Treasury Limber 11 with Doom on the front. Yeah. Great series of books that are in there with Dr. Doom and the Submariner and one of the greatest villain teams ever, Frightful Four. Stan, probably his favorite story about the Fantastic Four, this man, this monster, focusing on the thing. Mm -hmm. And I got the first one later, which is, like you said, the Galactus Trilogy is in there, which is extremely expensive. So if you want to try to read it without buying it digitally, you want something tangible, hunt down one of these. But uh, they're great books. I remember reading those in my grandparents' house in the recliner, feet up with a glass of iced tea, and just reading this book to death. And it, but the fun thing is on the back and inside that have pinups that are new. Mm -hmm. Like Kirby did the back art that was new. And I noticed something else. And this was all had to do with inflation at the time. I didn't notice this until last night when I looked at these two. They got smaller. They stayed the same price, mm. but they got a little bit smaller. And that's when comics went from, I think, like 25 cents up to like 30. So they kept the page count the same, just shrunk it down a little bit. But uh, there were those. And I don't know if you've seen this. There was a pocketbook by Pocket Books. And I have a few of these. And there's a Fantastic Four one I got. About the same time as the Treasury, and it had the first six issues. I'd never laid my eyes on anything like that before. I read the first story in reprints, the uh, Origin of Marvel Comics, that paperback. Remember that? Yeah. And there's these great little uh, pocket books that actually cover the comics. The print's pretty small for me now, but yeah. they're great. And uh, I've loved those stories. In fact, one of my first comics, not the first comic, but one of the ones I got was a hand-me-down. And it was the one where the FF is fighting the Submariner, and it was, I think, John Buscema did the art, or John Romita, I can't remember. It was right after Kirby left. It was yeah. in the middle of that story, and it was pretty beat up, but I just, that cover just really was amazing and arresting. Uh, even though it wasn't Kirby, it was still a, a different direction in terms of the art, but it was very, very impressive. And all those stories I've read, it's hard to pick a favorite. I just mentioned what Stan's favorite was. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite story out of all of them that you think either represents the group or for some reason it means something to you? You mentioned like this man, this monster. That is like a really good one. And I understand why Stan chooses it. It is a good one to pick. And it's one of the few really good standalone stories. Mm -hmm. um, it's like very contained. But to me, like the beauty of the Fantastic Four is the way it sprawls. The way like, you know, one issue runs into the other and it's just this like smear of subplots and stories. So like another favorite for me is The Coming of Galactus, that three-parter, because of the way these these stories spread and smear and blur with each other. It's called a trilogy. The, the story of Galactus is really like two issues worth. It's kind of like the first issue of it, the Silver Surfer and Galactus portion of the story kind of starts halfway through, and then it ends like halfway through the third one. Once it gets really good, that's how the Fantastic Four goes. It's like you don't really know where one begins or one ends. So it's hard to pinpoint an issue. So like this man, this monster makes it easy. You can pinpoint that particular issue. But it's a tough choice. Like the Silver Surfer coming of Galactus one is really great. But there's like a point after that where, you know, it's kind of like the poetry of the Marvel Universe. What makes the Marvel Universe like such an appealing concept in and of itself? It was this long ongoing storyline where you have the Inhumans trapped underneath this like force field. They call it like a negative zone, this bubble. They're all trapped in there and they're trying to figure out ways to get out. And then you have like Johnny and Wyatt Wingfoot riding around in this like sphere, this like gyroscope, kind of like a hamster in a plastic ball kind of vehicle that the Black Panther gave them. Uh, and they're looking for 
the Inhumans, like they're trying to find the Inhumans. And then you have Dr. Doom tricks the gullible Silver Surfer into surrendering his power. So Dr. Doom has like the power cosmic and he has Silver Surfer's surfboard and he's like, you know, flying around like holding the world at ransom thing, like feeling sorry for it. So you have all these like just great stories all going at once. You can't pin that down to one issue. That's like maybe nine issues worth of stuff. There's like one issue in there that I really like a lot. All these subplots are kind of hitting their peak. I'm not good at like the numbers for like these issues, like what number, but it's got this yellow cover and it's got Black Bolt on the cover. The Fantastic Four and stuff are on the side. Black Bolt's screaming and the city is Adelan, Great Refuge, where the Inhumans are trapped. The whole thing's coming down because Black Bolt's, you know, letting out his sonic scream to destroy the force field. And Silver Surfer's like finally getting his powers back that were stolen from Doctor Doom, that Doctor Doom lost the issue. Like it's just everything's happening at once. Like, I really like that issue. I'd probably say that issue. But again, it's not like This Man, This Monster. They put it in books like the 50 year anniversary of Marvel. Like anytime Marvel puts out some kind of like greatest hits book, because it just fits so nicely. But this one never gets reprinted. It's not a complete story. It's all this great stuff, but it's like part of this larger whole. I'm trying to think back and remember, but I think that Galactus trilogy was the longest story that they had running through issues to date. They had some two-parters, but I think that was the start of when they started doing longer stories that actually carried mm-hmm. over issue to issue. And I know once you get beyond that, it's hard to pick one that's your favorite. Yeah. At that point, I think a lot of people feel that that was when the book really started hitting its stride. Like it really was starting to peak. Yeah. It was getting more cosmic, and you saw more of Kirby's influence in it as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I enjoyed reading about over the course of the history of the FF is how, with your favorite character, The Thing, how you first got introduced, he reverted back to human off and on a lot. Like, while his powers were stabilizing, Reed would try to cure him, and it would last for a little while, then he would go back, and this went on back and forth and back and forth. And one of my favorite runs, Ben reverted back to Ben Grimm, who's no longer The Thing, uh-huh. And then he was out of the group because they needed someone superpowered and they didn't want him to get hurt. So they brought in a fill-in Power Man to take over for him. And he got an exoskeleton suit eventually from Reed. And this was about a six-issue run in the mid-70s. Uh-huh. And I remember when I read that, it seemed to me like it was going on for a long, long time. Because you know how it is when you're younger. Six months is a long time as a percentage of what came before. So, But that uh-huh. was uh, one of my favorites. And there have been several times when the FF had another member come in, either to fill in for Sue. Usually that was the case while yeah. she was pregnant. And it was Medusa or Crystal. Who was your favorite fill-in FF member? That concept of the fill-in member, like I never gravitated towards that. To me, it always felt kind of gimmicky. They're not the Fantastic Four when you take them out of the equation. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Something I haven't really considered like, I don't know that they ever phrase it this way, but in Days of Future Past, John Byrne did with Chris Claremont, before John Byrne took over the Fantastic Four as, like, the writer and artist, they didn't call it the Fantastic Four, but he had this team that he led of mutants, and it was, like, him, uh, Storm, Colossus, and Kitty Pride, maybe Wolverine. Like, my thought was, like, this is, like, Days of Future Past. Yeah, I've never been really much for the fill-in or replacement characters so much. Like I said, the only one I really thought was kind of cool was Power Man because it was a really different fit for him, a different yeah. dynamic, you know, as far as being in that team. It was a little bit fresher, too, because when I think of the substitute members, I'm thinking of, like, later, where you'd have, like, She-Hulk in there, or, you know, in the 90s or late 80s, Hulk, Ghost Rider, Wolverine, you know, like, where they really went gimmicky. And then, I don't know if this is, like, a fill-in or if this was just from, like, a what-if issue or whatever, but I think I remember, like, Spider-Man being part of the team at one point. 
And that's kind of satisfying to me when Spider-Man kind of fills it. Like sometimes think even more recently, like the Human Torch would be out of commission and then Spider-Man as kind of like his friend slash rival does him a favor and kind of pinch hits, fills in for him as a member of the team. I think Spider-Man's like a good fit because it kind of goes back to like one of the early, early Jack Kirby, Stan Lee comics where, you know, Spider-Man like tries to join the Fantastic yes. Four. Like he he kind of has has the wrong idea about them. He thinks that it's like a job and finally I'll get a salary. Like I'll make some money as a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was Spider-Man number one. I, was, I remember him on the cover being trapped. He was trying to get into mm-hmm. the uh, Baxter building. Yeah, because yeah, he needed a job, a study job. Most of your FF books, I'm wondering, like, how did you curate all of those? Because I know the original books are very expensive now. Did you buy reprints? Uh, how did you go about getting all that information? They had those World's Greatest Comics. They came out in like the 70s, maybe the 80s too, where they would reprint the old Fantastic Four stories. So that's how I first started accumulating the series and got pretty close to all of it. And they were great. They were really raunchy reprints, like printing was really bad. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't appreciate just how beautifully drawn they were by Jack Kirby and by Joe Sinnott. Like, I didn't appreciate just how well drawn they were until I started seeing the original issues, because those reprints from the 70s, like, if you look at them, the fine lines just disappear. So it's like, you're looking at this, like, very blurry version. still looks great, but I had those. And then, you know, Marvel had been putting out these, like, black and white phone books, Whatever issues of that I didn't have would get filled in by those phone books. I forget what they were called. They're, uh, essentials. Essentials. Marvel Essentials. Yeah. DC has like their version of it too. But so that filled it in. But then as I became like more interested in this comic, I started replacing my reprints with originals one by one. And you know what? Like this was maybe late 90s, early 2000s. So you could still find a lot of the issues for like a pretty reasonable price. Like they've gone up considerably since then, but it was kind of like just before they really jumped up to being kind of ridiculous. You could find them for like $3. And then maybe there'd be like a really rare one that you get for like $6. It was doable. That's kind of how I got my collection and slowly replaced. So I don't have like the complete Fantastic Four run in early issues, of course, especially those like early, early issues. Oh yeah, very expensive. Yeah, but I have all of it in some form. Back in the early 90s and even the 80s, I did buy some when they were still very affordable. I mean, not beautiful copies for the most part. Some of them are pretty heavily read, but the reader copies, they're reasonable. And like you, I bought Marvel's Greatest Comics where they did the reprints to get the older stories because it was coming out the same time as the monthly. So I enjoyed both getting both of those at the same time, reading the old stuff and the new stuff. And out of all those books that you've read, which story do you think is the most underrated that does not get enough credit for being a great Fantastic Four story? That is a really good question. Like whenever I talk to somebody, ever since I started doing this Fantastic Four comic, when I talk to somebody, a fan of the Fantastic Four, that's what I kind of ask them. Like, I want to know, like, what's the one that's like kind of off the beaten path that you really like? Because there are a small number of issues that people always name as like, oh, this is a great one. This is a great one. So like, I want to know the ones off the beat. Yeah, just like one other thing that occurred to me is like those Marvel greatest comics, a lot of them were missing a page or two because page count had shrunk from the 60s to the 70s. Some of them were missing a page. And a lot of times it would be kind of painless. Like maybe they'd cut out like a splash page or something. But when I realized that there was a page, sometimes two pages of comics missing, then I was like, okay, I definitely have to get my hands on the original. I'm missing something here. I didn't know that because I've never compared them to the original. So, wow, <laughs> I just learned something. 
you're missing stuff. And sometimes it's like really cool stuff that gets on a cutting room floor. For Fantastic Four, like I really like, just for Marvel in general, I'm a really big fan of the what ifs. Like I love what if. There's like a completeness to them and there's like a tinge of tragedy. You can do sort of like big moves and have endings to the stories, which is something like if you're a fan of Marvel, you're always denied that. They never end anything. It's this continuous run on sentence. So you get these stories with a nice beginning, middle and end. One that I really like that I don't really hear people talk about too much. What if the Fantastic Four all had the same power? I think it was written by maybe Jim Valentino or or maybe he did like layouts and then someone else finished the art or whatever. But I thought that one was really good because it was four different stories of the Fantastic Four and like. One of them was like, okay, what if they all got the Invisible Girl's power? What would that be like? And then what if they all got Mr. Fantastic's power? And then what if they all got the Thing's power? What if they all turned into monsters? Uh, what if they all turned into, like, flame? Each one was, like, tonally different when they all become the Human Torch. Like, it's very tragic because in their first mission, like, they set fire to this, like, neighborhood. And, like, a child's, like, trapped inside one of the buildings that they thought was abandoned and dies and this is like fantastic four issue three or something or two when this happens it's this huge tragedy that they caused and so they break up the team so that one's like very sad and very tragic when they all get mr fantastic's powers it's it's like comedic it's kind of fun it's like this rid- and like mr imagine. fantastic yeah they're all they're all stretching and stuff and mr fantastic's like this is great we're gonna become superheroes you know we're gonna save the world and then sue is like no she's like shut up you know, I, this is ridiculous. I don't want anybody to see me like this. This is ridiculous. This is a joke. You know, F you. We're not doing this at all. And so the thing and Sue, they become a couple. They go off and get married and like never use their superpowers again and just live like the quiet life together, this happy, quiet life together. And then uh, Mr. Fantastic is kind of, he just throws himself into his science and just like creates all these amazing inventions. And and occasionally there's like a test tube across the room that he has to get to so like stretch his arm to get it. But then Johnny Storm becomes this pop culture, evil Knievel kind of character, Mr. Fantastic. And he like goes on talk shows and whole like, you know, steal Johnny Carson's wallet out of his pocket while he's talking to him, you know? (laughs) And so just this great comedy story. And then the final one is like real tragic. What if they all get the thing's power? So like they all become various monsters. The thing becomes like the thing. And then Reed Richards becomes this kind of semi thing, this kind of bestial character. And then Johnny Storm becomes like another, you know, kind of like the whole similar to these kind of like generic Marvel monster type things. But then Sue becomes man thing, the sort of dead eyes and just no will, no uh, agency. Their job is to just sort of take care of Sue like forever. And they're outcasts. They flee to Monster Island and just take care of Sue. And she's just not Sue anymore. She's just this dead-eyed kind of creature that just shambles and wanders, just really you know, unsettling and sad. And it would be that what-if issue. That one I haven't read, but I do have several of the what-if, especially the first volume. And I remember there was one where the uh, bullpen becomes the FF. You know, Stan yeah, and Jack, great, remember yeah. that? And then there was mm-hmm. one where they had different powers, and that one was more tragic. And I remember somebody had gargoyle wings on their back. It was like really, uh, really weird, totally different powers. Uh, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, that was volume one. The one I'm talking about is volume two of okay. What If. It was like late 80s, early 90s. We're going to talk about what you're working on now, giant size Treasury coming in October, FF Grand Design. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of history to pack in there. And that's the challenge with this is getting all that in there. Your unique take on it that's going to bring back and evoke the feelings of what Stan and Jack did. Now, how far through their history are you going to carry the series? I'm going to do all of the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee stuff. I'm going to do all of that. But everything else to varying degrees. It's two issues, two very extra-sized issues, two 40-page issues. That's a lot of pages for two comic books, but it's not a lot of pages 
for the complete story of the Fantastic Four. So, you know, I really have to scale it down, really be tight with it. But kind of the big idea of this sort of grand design thing, like what Ed Pisker did with Grand Design X-Men, is you're getting somebody that's bringing their point of view. So it's a lot of what parts of Fantastic Four really speak to me. And so what really speaks to me is largely those Stanley Jack Kirby issues, especially that middle period that we talked about, everything else to varying degrees. That's kind of how the series is. It's a lot of the Stan and Jack stuff and then a bunch of other stuff as seasoning, kind of like that. And I guess for me, like the big thing that I want to do with this is give the Fantastic Four the thing that they never really had is like an ending. Like I want to create with this an ending to the story that feels organic to the whole and feels like, oh, this is the natural outcome, also be surprising at the same time. So that's the big task I want to do. And some of that is going to be pulled from actual issues and things that happened in the comics. But then some of it is going to be creative, speculative work of just like really trying to end this story the way that it seems like it should end. Because that was, as a fan of this comic, that was like a big disappointment to me is um, I'd be reading Fantastic Four and then all these things would happen that had a lot of portent to them, seemed like a lot of foreshadowing, like, oh, this character's gonna be really important. There's a mystery going on with Wyatt Wingfoot and the coach at Empire State University, and and this is gonna go somewhere. This is really gonna lead to something. It didn't go anywhere. Like, you read all that, and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead anywhere. You know, all these little threads that seem like, oh, this is really gonna add up to some, you know, slam bang finish. It never comes, because Jack Kirby loses interest in the series maybe a couple years before he leaves Marvel and leaves the series. So it kind of loses focus. He leaves entirely. So any hope of a payoff or a conclusion is totally gone once he leaves. And then once Kirby's out of the equation, it's a very different book when it's just Stan. But then you know, Stan leaves. It's in other people's hands who really trying their hardest to figure out what this thing is about because it was such a book that was you know so unique to its two creators. Uh, just a really tough act to follow. And then just the nature of serial comics Uh, You know, you read enough superhero comics, you start to get it that, oh, yeah, these things do go on forever. It's, you know, that's just how they are. But there's sort of an innocence that you have in the beginning where you think it is going somewhere. You think that one day the thing is going to get cured and he is going to get like a happy outcome that, you know, it's going to say the end at some point and it just doesn't. And so with this thing, because it's like a contained, you know, mini series, I can end it. I can put the end and sort of satisfy that craving that I had. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that was the idea, which is uh, going to be a challenge, but I'm sure it will bring some satisfaction to yourself and to a lot of readers. And it does solve another issue. All the other ancillary books that came out later on, like Marvel 2-in-1 and the Thing miniseries and other appearances in other books, because how do you weave all that in to this story if you're going to do the entire history? So beyond really Stan and Jack, you don't have designs on going further and continuing. You want to just bring it to a a logical conclusion that should have happened had Jack stuck around, that there would have been some kind of cap to it. Well, no, I mean, like, my ending is going to incorporate the other stuff, too. Oh, okay. Like, when you look at the Fantastic Four as a whole, and you're like, what are the important things about the Fantastic Four? Most of it seems to be in that Stan and Jack stuff. And then after that, it's like, okay, in the burn run, there's a handful of things that are important that I got to include. And then the Engelhart run, okay, there's a couple of things, and, you know, and then like the various 1970s, various writers, there's like a couple bullet points. And then the nineties, there's like maybe one or two, books. it gets thinner and thinner. Like you do need this sort of holistic understanding of the Marvel universe to work on a mini series like this, because it's like spread through other books too. Like you mentioned, like Reed Richards had a really important role 
in Spider-Man's alien symbiote black suit. So that's got a figure in there somewhere too, you know, like, like, and that, that never showed up in an issue of Fantastic Four. That was in issues of Spider-Man. So it's like, I gotta, you know, at least have some kind of nod towards that, you know, so it's, it's like a lot of things like that. You know, it's really difficult to track all this stuff. It's almost like only certain people can work on a series like this because it's the kind of knowledge that you have to accumulate over a lifetime. You can't just sort of be thrown into it. And there's not enough time to research something so completely and then do a thing unless you've been doing that research your whole life, like Ed Pisker did with the X-Men and, and like I did with Fantastic Four. You know, these kind of projects, like they don't grow on trees. Not just anybody can do them. You got to pick the right one. Like I didn't choose the Fantastic Four. They approached me about the Fantastic Four, but that just happened to be a very good choice, a very good pairing of creator and characters. Speaking of the other books, do you plan on working in any of the, even a nod to the Strange Tale stories where Torch and the Thing were in that? There's a couple Strange Tales things that I've done so far in this series. The Strange Tales comics are kind of like a different tone mm -hmm. and they're a little bit silly, but there are a couple things. Time travel issue that Wally Wood inked. I forget who drew it, maybe like Bob Powell, somebody, but Wally Wood inked it. Like I love Wally Wood and it's this beautifully drawn, beautifully rendered Strange Tales story of the thing and, and the torch. And they go back to Arthurian times. So I found a little place for that. And I forget how much I went into it, but the Frightful Four, are really important in the Fantastic Four. They're kind of like the dark version, like the through a mirror darkly version of the Fantastic Four, the Frightful Four. And so they kind of start in Strange Tales. The wizard shows up as a Strange Tales villain and Paste Pot Pete shows up as a Strange Tales villain, even though the Sandman, you know, was created in Spider-Man. I think he shows up in Strange Tales. So it's kind of like the Frightful Four is building piece by piece in Strange Tales and then they all come together in Fantastic Four. Like, it's really it's really interesting the way Kirby and Stan Lee would be working on all these books simultaneously. And Fantastic Four, you could tell, was the flagship book. That was, like, a really important book for them. And then other ones are lesser importance. And so they would use them almost like a minor leagues to sort of build up these characters, this talent that would then, like, graduate to the main books. Yeah, it's neat to see those characters evolve, too, over the years. Like, you have Paste Pot Pete. And then mm -hmm. he's the Trapster, so I, I like looking at those old issues and then seeing how they're almost like comical in a way, that character not to be taken seriously, which he always hated that. But mm -hmm. then they evolve over time, and they become this really evil supervillain team fighting against them, and it's one of their best villains, I think. If you were to create an FF villain, your own creation, what would that look like? Oh, man, that's really good. That's a good question, too. Like, ah, wow. Yeah, I might have to think about that one these things that you're doing, you know, for a company like Marvel or, or, or when I did like Transformers and G.I. Joe for IDW and GoBots and stuff. If I created like a new character, if I created like a Deadpool or something like Rob Liefeld did in the 90s, they had a very different deal. Like Rob Liefeld created Deadpool at a time when you get partial ownership of that character. So he owns a piece of Deadpool. And so it's been, you know, it's been very beneficial to him to have done that. And those deals don't really exist anymore at those companies. So a lot of creators are kind of like, well, I'm not going to create a new character if like I'm going to use existing. For me, like I'm willing to create a new character just because if I need a particular character that doesn't already exist there, then I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to not create it. But like what I've found is that whenever I feel like I need a new character, character type that doesn't exist, I do a little bit of digging. And then I find that there is actually a pre-existing character that like fits the bill 
perfectly that I can use. So, you know, I haven't gotten to that point. Any characters that I've created so far have been sort of like further developments of pre-existing characters or, or different ways of looking. Yeah, I haven't given a ton of thought of creating an original uh, Fantastic Four character. I guess I would kind of look at like what's missing from the Fantastic Four mythology. Just the first thing that's come to mind just in this conversation would be to have an Asgardian ancestor or antecedent of the Fantastic Four or like a member of the Fantastic Four. So maybe the Storms, you know, they have such a Asgardian sort of last name, like maybe great, great grand somebody that's, you know, uh, you know, related to Thor or maybe Grimm. Those two M's in the Grimm last name kind of seems kind of Asgardian. Just talking, that would be like where my imagination would go. I kind of always had this concept. It would be kind of cool if the Kirby Marvel has all these different other dimensions and other domains that people can go. So you could go to Asgard and there's this whole like Asgardian universe. And then you go to Olympus and there's this whole Greek mythology universe. And you go to the negative zone and there's Annihilus and all this stuff. You go to the microverse and to apply that kind of Jack Kirby approach to something like Lovecraftian. So there's this like sort of, you know, Lovecraftian version of Asgard or the L zone or so, you know, the, the Lovecraft zone where you could have this whole pantheon of characters that are, you know, Lovecraft through a Kirby filter. Sounds really good. I like going with this stuff. <laughs> but you're only doing two issues, right? You don't have designs on going beyond that? I have another project that hasn't been announced yet okay. that I'm sort of working on concurrently with this and I'm going to finish this Fantastic Four thing, and then go like really, really, really deep into this other project. I just don't have the time to sort of continue in the immediate future and do more of these uh, Fantastic Four things. But I'm not averse to revisiting the Fantastic Four. Like, I think I have a lot to say about them, and I'm trying to do it within this. But I feel like there's going to be a lot of good stuff left on the cutting room floor. And this is sort of curating the greatest moments of the Fantastic Four, creating something new, but it's largely out of old pieces. And it's like a rehab job. I'm rehabilitating stuff, or I'm curating things, or I'm polishing, filling in cracks and stuff. But I would at some point in my life, maybe a few years from now, maybe a few decades from now, but I would like to continue the Fantastic Four story like into the future, like create like a real Fantastic Four run that picks up whatever the previous issue of Fantastic Four was. I inaugurate the next chapter of their life and take them into completely uncharted territory. I'd like to do that. Whether it happens or not is fine with me. I mean, there's other things I could be doing, but I definitely have ideas and creative reserves that could be tapped for a project like that. Just talking about this, you gave me an idea. Something you could think about is, you know, someday you could always do your own what if story or what if anthology with all these ideas you're coming up with, you know, and have Asgardian Fantastic Fours or some other iteration of them with all these ideas that just come springing out of your mind. Just talking about it, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, call it why not instead of what, what if. <laughs> oh, man. Do you have time for the fun questions asked all my guests? I call kicking back with the creator just to learn more about you as a person. Yeah, sure. All right. Tom, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I like to read comics. Reading comics is so much fun. I really been so busy for the past like year or two that I just haven't had anywhere near the amount of time that I like. But I, yeah, I love to read comic books. I like video games. They're quicker and easier to do than comics. So just recently, when I need to sort of blow off steam for a few minutes or whatever, like I'll tend to do that just because it's like easier than, you know, finding some peace and quiet somewhere and, and reading comics. It's not as restorative as reading a comic, but it's good. Now, thinking back to a birthday that you had, what was your favorite birthday and why? I think this is maybe typical for people. Like, this is just a natural thing. But, of course, like, your best birthdays are, like, you know, when you were a little kid. and uh, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're just a different creature back then. You're just completely different chemistry. Like your brain just is kind of constantly firing on all cylinders and you're just taking everything in. But when I was a kid, I guess like from preschool, kindergarten, early grade school to third grade, we'd have like our family birthday party where it'd be like relatives and stuff. But then we'd have like a friend's party, like all our friends would come over. And there was one year where it was like kind of magical. It was, you know, like we're in like the backyard of the first house that I lived in when I was a kid. And, you know, we had like a swing set and stuff. And like, I don't know if this was planned as a theme. It was kind of like a Tolkien themed birthday party. You know, it was long before any of those like Lord of the Rings movies came out. It was like the Hobbit cartoon movie. You know, that had come out. I, I don't know how many years previous or whatever. For whatever reason, I don't know if my dad just got a deal on these or whatever. It, it was just like all these posters from the Hobbit cartoon movie, you know, were just like incorporated into the party and just, you know, just like all the kids in the neighborhood were there and just like fun party games and stuff. And and I, I think that was like the prizes that we gave out were like these Tolkien. Things. So that would be, again, I have these like misty, semi-formed memories of it you know it's just like a feeling almost but it was just kind of magical and, and i'm sure like the tolkien you know hobbit aspect doesn't hurt adding to the magic the best we can hope for with the kids they're gonna remember all this stuff in detail when they get older and probably not but i hope that it does impart on them some magical feeling some sense of happiness when they get older that mm-hmm. i remember that birthday you know even if they remember all, all the details and everything they'll still have that feeling of the fun times back then and that's what you hope for anyway this might have even been the same birthday, or maybe it was a different birthday, but it was around the time that like MTV was new. Uh, me and my brother, like our birthdays were pretty close, so we'd usually have these like joint birthday parties. He was really into MTV. Like MTV was this new thing. It was an MTV themed birthday party where it was like pin the tie on David Bowie instead of pin the tail on a donkey. And so, like it was just, it was it just so that that one stands out. For all I know, it might have been. Maybe my half of the birthday party was Tolkien-themed and and my brother's half was MTV-themed. Or maybe it was two different birthday parties. But that one stands out, too. That's cool. Back then, when MTV was on, it's like, uh, I'd say to my girlfriend, you want to watch MTV tonight? And that would be the the day because it was a new thing. And you had to sit there and watch videos for hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, this is the island book question. You're stuck on a desert island. You can only have one book for pleasure. Just pass the time. What's the one book you want to have with you? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, like The Lord of the Rings. You know, you'd want a book that's really long yeah. that you could just, uh, <laughs> you know, and like including like the Silmarillion and, you know. I know it's tough. It's a tough question. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean. And it will change and evolve. Quick answer would be The Lord of the Rings, you know, with all the appendices, Silmarillion would be included. So yeah, Lord of the Rings. Comics, the Jack Kirby's Fourth World, that whole body of work, that would be another one. You know, also Tolkien-esque. That's my quick answer. This is a hypothetical situation. They're going to make an action figure of you. If they do make an action figure, what would be your accessory? Uh, it would be a backpack. Like I have my backpack with me everywhere I go and it's got, you know, some drawing supplies and an iPad and some paper and a couple comics stowed in there. So yeah, it would be like a backpack with all this gear in it. Very useful and practical accessory. I have two and I use them a lot. <laughs> oh, one, in the, one in the front and one in the back. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keep you balanced. Yeah. And sir, your beverage of choice when you are resting and relaxing. Just water. We're talking right now. I'm drinking coffee. I use it strategically. So just to kind of, you know, keep me alert and sharp as we talk. I got some coffee here. Uh, and then recently I've gotten into like juicing, like sticking a bunch of like vegetables into a blender and, you know, grinding them to a pulp and then just like drinking or eating it as a soup. And that's been a lot of fun lately. But yeah, just water, some nice, clean, fresh water. Now, this one's a new question. And I got this idea 
from a Twitter post that was out there. I follow Lauren Skinkis Art, and he follows me, and we got mm-hmm. to talking about comic books that we passed by on. And for me, it was Daredevil number one that I had a chance to buy it. It was like a hundred sure, bucks, beat yeah. up. But I, you know, mm-hmm. and another one FF related was FF number two, and it was like oh, stupid. It was like. 40 bucks. This is like 1990 or something. But I'm like, ah, it's got a tear on the cover. Or I think I've read the reprint. Really stupid on my part. Anyway, that's a regret that I have. Do you have any like that? Oh, yeah, I've got a bunch. It was like a copy of the Fantastic Four where the Frightful Four drop a nuke on the Fantastic Four. Like at the very end, they drop a, a nuclear bomb on them. And then the next issue, like Fantastic Four have lost their powers. It was maybe like eight bucks or whatever. And I was like, ah, that's, you know, it wasn't too, too long ago. It's like, ah, oh, that's too rich for my blood. And I've seen that one again for like $30 at least. And it's just like, I, I just can't like, I can't pull the trigger. It's like, oh man, I, I should have grabbed that. Of course, like, I mean, this isn't as much of a regret anymore, but for the longest time, uh, some of those like later issues of Alan Moore's Miracle Man, like I'd see him at a convention and it'd be like 10 bucks or whatever. And I'd be like, ah, forget it. And then for years, it was like $125, you know, like for the one where like Kid Miracle Man just goes nuts. And like for the longest time, it was like, oh, why didn't I pick that thing up when it was 10 bucks? So, you know. Uh, But now, like, they've reprinted all that stuff. That's not really an issue anymore. And then I was at San Diego Comic-Con, maybe, like, 2008, and Mike Thibodeau was selling art representative of, you know, the Kirby family, and he was selling Kirby pages. You know, I was at San Diego, and I'm just looking at these Kirby pages, pages from Jimmy Olsen issues Mm -hmm. that Mike Royer inked, where Superman goes to New Genesis, goes to Supertown. Jack Kirby drawing Superman with the new gods, and he got Mike Royer inking. So there were like two issues like this where they didn't have like the paste-ups where they'd like redraw Jack Kirby Superman, where it's like everything would be Jack Kirby except Superman. Like you want to see a Jack Kirby Superman. And so it was like beautiful instances of Jack Kirby at the peak of his powers, drawing Superman, interacting with his original characters, you know, the fourth world characters, I saw that, and they were like $150 each, these pages. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, and I was like, I'm here in San Diego. It was kind of expensive to get here, and I want to make you know make back some of the money that I spent to get here. So it's, it's not the right time for me to buy things. And so I passed them up. And, of course, like just like a couple years after that, those things had increased in price 10 times, where they were like $1,500. And they've only like gone up. And it would just have been nice to like have a Kirby original page and to have one that's like that special and that cool and that – that nice. And so I passed that. And then there were even pages from superpowers that Kirby did where they weren't inked on the page. Greg Theakston inked them on a different page. So these were like original Kirby pencils, preserved drawings of Dark Side and Desaad, like all these fourth world characters done by Kirby late in his career, but they're pencils, they're his original creations, they're unique, beautiful things. And they were like $90, $50. Like I should have just scooped up everything. That's a big regret that I think about a lot. When I go to cons and stuff, I think about it like you do, like, oh, can I afford that right now? Should I buy that sure. right now? And sometimes I'll pull the trigger and just say, you know what, I'll go home and beg forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, temporary insanity. I had to get this piece. But yeah, I've got to like set up a plan, a budget, like what I plan to buy and kind of set a limit for myself. And I try to stay away from things like buying a lot of comics online because it's too easy to see. Too easy, yeah. I want that. Boom. You know, and then it's, oh, you can easily spend way too much. So I try to make sure that I'm like physically in a store 
or at a con and limit it to something like that if I want to buy it. So that way I'm putting some brakes on my uh, hobby habit, mm-hmm. I almost said, but it's a habit too. Well, related to that question, did you ever get a chance to pick up some art that you really wanted? It'll, it'll happen. There's another reg- – it's not a book or anything, but it was something I had. But like I've really been getting into board games a lot lately. Uh, a bunch of years ago, I got Hero Quest at you know like a flea market for like a dollar. And it's this like really great board game that was like Milton Bradley and Games Workshop did this. It's like a very cool, complex, but simple, you know, sort of dungeon crawl board game with all these great pieces, that different props and things. And I had it and like I never got around to playing it. I always wanted to play it, but I just never got around to it. Like I was just busy with work and comics and stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I'm probably never going to play this. So I just got rid of it. I like, you know, gave it to Goodwill or something. And I'm like, oh man, I wish I never would have got, oh man. Because now it's like, you know, you have to pay like a hundred some bucks to get it now. And, and, you know, online, you know, sometimes you order stuff and online and secondhand stuff. And it's got like a funky smell in it of like whatever that person's, you know, house smelled like, you know, like it's just, you know, like I had it. That's another one. Okay. Final question. If you had a chance, what would you ask? Stan and Jack about the Fantastic Four. I don't know that you'd get an answer out of them because I think like for both of them, they're famous for, you know, being kind of hazy on the details Mm -hmm. of this and that. Like there's some creators, you ask them, oh, what was this? What was that? And they can give you an answer. But like they were working on so many things at such a speed that it's like, I don't like they might start telling you about the Hulk or start telling (laughs) you about, you know, this or that. Yeah. But I mean, my question would be, did you have an ending in mind? Like, where did you see this story going? I get the feeling Stan, I think he did like one Fantastic Four ending, where it was like many, many years later. And they said, OK, Stan, do Fantastic Four the end. And he did a story that just felt like, oh, yeah, sure. Here it is. So I don't I don't know. Maybe at some point he had he had an idea of, of where it was going to end. But I'd like to know from Kirby, like because he ne- he never got the chance to do that story, you know, and maybe maybe he was offered the chance to do something like that. Like, I know that he specifically did not want to work when he came back to Marvel in the 70s. He did not want to work on the Fantastic Four. He drew covers for it, but he was offered working on Fantastic Four. Now, I think it came with the stipulation that, like, I think it was like maybe Roy Thomas that offered it. I might be wrong, but uh, Roy Thomas offered it to him, but it was the stipulation that Roy Thomas writes it. Or maybe it was, you know, Marv Wolfman offered it to him, but with the stipulation that Marv Wolfman writes. I don't know, but I don't know that he was ever offered. Here's the Fantastic Four, and we want you to write it. But I know that he was offered the Fantastic Four and refused. So, And I have a feeling that maybe Kirby didn't know where it was going to go. But I'll bet he could come up with a really cool answer just in the moment. Whatever happened to the Silver Surfer? Like, how was that story going to go? Like, where did you see that going? And what was the Wyatt Wingfoot thing? Where was that going? But just having worked on stuff, you know, I get the sense that a lot of times, you know, something in you, something in your subconscious is telling you that this is what needs to happen right now. But you maybe can't articulate where you see it going, but but you just have this sense. And that if you have enough time to follow that trail, you will end up somewhere and you'll end up somewhere beautiful and somewhere that like in your subconscious or or whatever, somewhere that's like been there all along. Just want to know like, where was this thing going? Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, back when they first came up with these ideas in the early days of Marvel, they didn't know how long it was going to run. Sure. They just moved on to the next idea. And Mm -hmm. maybe they had something in mind for an ending. We don't know. We'll never know. But, Maybe you'll have one for us. Maybe you can channel that with this book coming up, FF Grand Design. It's wish fulfillment. I'm trying to <laughs> grant my own wish. <laughs> well, Tom, good luck to you with the book. I'm looking forward to it. It's coming out in October. Thank you so much for being on Creative Talks. Oh, you're welcome. 
It's been a pleasure. There's so much FF we could talk about. So much stuff. I have stuff I'd be like, oh, I'll just skip over that for now. We'll get together again sometime. <laughs> There's so much to it. And it's just like looking at all these old issues and stuff. There's these like beautiful sequences, this whole sequence, but there's just not time for it. Some of it's almost like animation. We'll have these moments, panel after panel of this like slow motion movement of like the thing doing something or like this man, this monster, like I'm such a fan of that story, but I'm looking at it. I did a thing where I boiled this man, this monster into like two pages because it's such an important story. So great. But then I started thinking this man, this monster is actually largely about this unnamed character who steals Ben Grimm's powers and hasn't shown up before and never shows up again. And so I can't devote two pages of real estate to this. I just trimmed it way down. I still give it some space, but it's like, it's like under a page, this momentous story. Focus on the FF. What parts of this story are germane to the FF? And so even like that scientist who steals the thing's powers is in the transfer process. Some of Ben Grimm's heroism you know, rubbed off on him. You know, just make it about the Fantastic Four. That's a good idea because, I mean, I think most people that are very familiar with the Fantastic Four are well aware of that story. So you don't have to go through, of course, everything. Pull out the important parts about the FF, how they change that person. With these uh, grand design things, like with Ed's grand design, they would reprint an old issue of the original stuff in the back of his. And so it would be like X-Men number one. Now, since mine's just going to be one treasury size thing, there's only room for one story. But I'm sure they're going to want Fantastic Four number one. Anybody who knows anything about the FF has read that one. So it'd be kind of redundant. Like I want to put in like one of those deep cut stories, like one of those ones like that issue I talked about. Fantastic Four number one is such a no brainer, but it's maybe too much of a no brainer. Yeah, I would want to see something else. And Mm -hmm. I like in that uh, grand design how I did recoloring on that too. My thought for how to do that, I just have, you know, some reprints. And then I have my copy of Stan Lee's book, The Origins of Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. If I had a copy of Fantastic Four number one, I would just scan that in and put that in full color scan where you see like tears in the paper. So if we did do one of those more obscure issues that I own, I could just scan mine in. And one of the issues I'm thinking, my copy, half the cover is missing. So even that, like run it as like a scan with half the cover missing. Because even before I was offered this gig, I you know kind of had it in my head that one of these days I'm going to get to do the Fantastic Four. So my copies of the Fantastic Four have all these margin notes in pencil where I'd write like you know my ideas of how to you know adjust this or change that. That would be in there too. You'd see my little margin notes in the reprint too. I'd love to see them do that. And that little extra bit of interview after the thanks for being on the show was okayed by Tom because he shared some really cool ideas about how to put together the giant-sized treasury edition of the book and what kind of back issue they could include and why he wanted to include one of his own personal comics, which has got really cool ideas. So please, Marvel, be edgy. Do it. Coming up in two weeks on the show, Mark Irwin. Mark is writing that David Bowie comic book that is being illustrated by Mike and Laura Allred. And we're going to just talk a little bit about that near the end of the interview, but primarily I want to discuss with Mark about going to the Kubert School, which he is a graduate of, working as an inker and editor for Marvel, Image, and Heavy Metal Magazine. He is now the executive editor of Insight Editions, and they make some incredibly great hardback graphic novels, very much in a European style. And what is one of the book's connections with a member of the band Rush, which is Mark's favorite band. So join me in two weeks to learn all about that. It's a great conversation. 
until then, you know where to find me at Creative Talks Pod. That's at Creative Talks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I will also post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my personal collection. And I know I've been posting a lot of Western comics and war comics. That's what I'm into right now are those old comics, Silver and Bronze Age books like those, and also some of the old Spider-Man reprints from the Bronze Age. They're really cool, and I tell you why in my posts. If you need to reach me directly, you may email me at creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. My new email address, even easier to remember than the old one for you. And less costly for me because I can pass the savings on to you. Now you're saving twice as much. Why? Because the podcast is free. It is free on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, voice-enabled smart speakers, and now it's on Spotify. So see, now it's twice the bargain it used to be. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show and spread by word of mouth to friends and family who like comics and comic book creators and who want to hear good conversation. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy your new comics. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. (laughs) 